Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward. Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to dive into the Sermon on the Mount as we work our way through this series called Resurrection Community. And as Crystal read from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you start to get a feel for it. Last week, I kind of did a survey walking through Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, and that was kind of the presentation of the King. And so it's presenting Jesus as this one who's emerged on the scene, this one who has uh, experienced the virgin birth, this one who is of a, a, a lineage that comes from David and Abraham, this one who was tested in the wilderness as a Moses and survived that temptation that was there, this one that had a forerunner, John the Baptist, that went ahead of him and announced him and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus emerges on the scene and begins to proclaim that same message. He recruits his disciples. And then at chapter five, we see he gathers those same disciples and in front of them, um, he sits down and begins to preach this sermon. So we had the presentation of the king. Now this week, we're gonna begin to look at the preaching of the king. And this is perhaps the best known and maybe least understood section of the entire New Testament. Uh, These are verses that everyone uh, is familiar with. If you've been around our world much at all, they get quoted in all kinds of contexts. And yet, I think many of us miss out on what Jesus is really saying. We call this section here in this first part of Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. And Beatitudes come from a Latin word, beatus, which means blessed. And you notice, as Crystal read earlier, these, uh, each of these first eight or nine verses um, here in, in, uh, math, in uh, Jesus' sermon are, begin with this word, blessed. Now, that word is a notoriously difficult word to translate. So as we jump in here, as we think about what this is, let me just pray for us, and then uh, we're going to dive into the, the Beatitudes and see what we can learn here. Heavenly Father, we do come, and Father, we, we come asking, seeking. Father, we come as those who are poor in spirit and have nothing of ourselves to bring that would add to your glory or your goodness or your holiness. Father, we come humbly, Father, help us to be those who mourn over our sin and sin in the world. Help us to be those who come with meekness and humility before you. And so, Father, even today as we begin to talk about what these things mean, would you 
Would you stir those up in our heart? Would you, would, you, would you breathe life into us by your spirit that we might understand? Would you open the ears, open our, the ears of our heart so we might hear you, we might see you um, through removing the blindness of our spiritual eyes? Father, we pray these things in Christ's name and by your spirit. Amen. Well, this word blessed is notoriously difficult to translate. In fact, in both Hebrew and Greek, there's two different words for blessed that, uh, that show up regularly. And one of them really is the one we, we tend to think of when we think of blessing. And that is this kind of blessed by God. And so it's this pouring down of God's favor or his goodness or his blessing directly onto you. And so it's as though God himself blessed you with something. And we use that term oftentimes to, to refer to this idea of blessing. But there's another word in, in both Hebrew and Greek that is used here. This is not so much talking about being blessed by God directly through this kind of pouring out of his favor upon you, but it's this, this sense of I'm blessed in that I'm going in a good way. I'm moving in the right direction. I'm moving in a healthy direction. And in that um, in that term, it really is more of a kind of an earthy person focused flourishing through a virtuous life. It's, it's, it's kind of in the sense that this is the way God has made the world to work. And as you walk or, or live into this way of living, you're going to flourish. You're going to, you're to be congratulated for the way to li you live. You're, in, you're moving in a, in a good direction or a healthy way. And it means kind of that more, uh, kind of more along those lines um, of, of understanding. And so one as you think about that, it really occurs through a relationship with God. The way you maximize that sort of earthy flourishing or blessing comes through with the help of God, but it's still very much a human endeavor in some ways. And so that really is, in a sense, kind of why, or key to understanding what it is Jesus is saying as he begins to unpack these Beatitudes. And so as you think about words that might be used here to translate this term, because I'm pretty convinced as I've studied this a whole lot over the last four or five weeks that there is no one word in English that suffices to translate this word well. It's just, it can't really be done going from what it means in Hebrew and Greek to English very well. But oftentimes we use the word blessed. The problem is for us, that sounds, we tend to think too spiritually about that. It feels a little too theological. Like this is directly connected to God pouring out blessings on us. And so blessed, although that was the most common, sometimes can be misleading to us because we tend to think, and I think a lot of that's through just the influence of American culture through health and wealth mentality through kind of prosperity gospel and some of these kind of false ideas in our world, that words become loaded with some other things that the, the scriptures don't really intend. So maybe, maybe blessed isn't the best way to do it. Another way you see it translated an awful lot is happy. Uh, the problem with happy is, and it's just too jovial, right? It's, it just feels like it trivializes it. It's like happy are the people and you're like, ah, that just doesn't have a whole lot of weight to it. And maybe it's a little too psychological of a term. Another phrase that you might use is say that to be congratulated are people that walk in these ways. So to be congratulated are people that mourn, to be congratulated, but that feels a little bit too achievement focused. One, uh, one guy said, one of the favorite ones that I, that I heard was a guy said there's an Aussie or an Australian phrase uh, that just says, good on you, mate. And he said, that maybe that's actually a pretty good way to say it. That, you know, if you're going and you're running in life this way, he just goes, good on you, mate. And that means you're doing good. Keep going. Um, Perhaps the best one that I've read in my studies over the last five or six weeks is one that just says flourishing. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. Flourishing are the meek. 
These are ones that are flourishing because they're leaning in and living into the way in which God has created the world. And so their way of being in God's world is actually bringing about their flourishing in the way in which they live. And so if we take this word to heart, if we think about this, really what the Beatitudes are, they're this invitation by Jesus to say, come, learn how to flourish in the world that I've created for you to walk in. Learn what it means to live well in this world. And Jesus begins with this kind of philosophical question of human happiness. What does the good life really look like? And the Beatitudes are meant to answer that question, which is the great philosophical question that has been asked for, for all time. What, what does it look like to flourish in this world in which we live? And Jesus' answer, at least in the Beatitudes as he begins his answer, uh, takes the form of, uh, of a series of challenges and promises. Challenges for the way we live and promises for the way in which he will cause us to operate. And ultimately what he's going to say is that the way of human flourishing is only possible through communion with God your Father, through his Son, empowered by his Spirit that ultimately that's the only way of human flourishing and fullness here in our world. And I love what um, kind of where this points us and where it takes us to go. Eugene Peterson says this, Scripture does not so much present us with a moral code and tell us live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say just think like this, but the biblical way is to tell a story and invite us live into this. This is what it looks like to be a human in this God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. And so Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, let me tell you about the world that, that, are, that, that, my, that me, and my, me and my father have made for you. And let me tell you what it looks like to flourish in this world. And I want to invite you to learn to follow me in learning to live this kind of a way and this kind of a life. So let's get into the text. Verse 3 um, he begins, and imagine this for starting out a sermon, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Just right out of the gates, he just says, blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly, as Jesus begins this sermon on the mount, he, there's an inclusio that happens, or kind of a bracket or bookends on either side of the Beatitudes. The first one and the eighth one both begin with this promise of theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is that, that, that all of God's flourishing is what, this is what opens up uh, the path of God's kingdom in our lives and uh, teaches us what it, looks like, what it looks like for us to live into that kind of a life. And so when he talks about being poor in spirit, Webster's Dictionary defines poverty as the state of one's insufficient resources. So the way of flourishing, friends, Jesus says is, you got to realize you don't have anything to offer. You gotta say, I come, I come poor, I come in poverty. And to be in poverty is to be needy, it's to be lacking, it's doing without, it's unable to provide for oneself. And is there anything harder for an American to admit than and I've got nothing to offer? I have nothing to bring to the table here. To be in poor in spirit means to be spiritually needy, lacking, without basic necessities of life. It means acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy. That when you look in, in your account, you go, man, there's nothing I have that I can bring to the table, but there's a poverty of spirit in me. It's why Jesus' very first message, it says, was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason you have to repent is you've got to recognize that the way you're going is not working and you've got to find a new way. And so as Jesus begins that, it's really acknowledging the spiritual bankruptcy and to understand that is the key to being able to move forward spiritually. Now, you know, it's kind of funny. I was noticing when we were singing up here that uh, Peter had a, a shirt on that's a Dallas Cowboys jersey. 
And as a, as a co-Dallas Cowboys fan, like that's one way to, to foster a poverty of spirit is just to recognize that like we're never gonna make the playoffs again. This thing may never turn around. We may never move in the direction we wanna go. Like that's a form of poverty of spirit. This is actually a different kind of a thing. This is a more of a spiritual poverty of acknowledging that I've got no ability to get in the playoffs personally uh, in terms of the spiritual world on my own. I need something else. But it's really difficult for us to admit um, in, in life, you know, it's easy as a, as a sports fan to look at your team and go, we have a losing record. We're not going to make it. It's pretty clear that we're impoverished, right? Spiritually, it's harder to look at your record. There's no scoreboard to look at and say, look, I'm in poverty, except the course of your life. But here's what Revelation 3.17 says to the church in Laodicea. It says, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that all the time you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Sometimes we don't have a healthy perspective of our own lives and our own standing and our own well-being. And do I even need to point out how different this message is from the world, from the message our world tells us? Our world says live in this self-expressiveness. Live in the sense of looking inside to see what's in here and whatever desire, whatever you're feeling, whatever emotion, whatever, uh, whatever need that you feel like is in here, you should express that and it should be affirmed and embraced because of of, of whoever you are needs, needs that affirmation that the world, uh, that the, that's what the world tells us. And yet Jesus comes to us and says something totally different. And I remember one time I, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good sized guy. So like, there's not a whole lot of people I feel intimidated by. But I remember going to a jazz club in Dallas one time, the Sambuca club. And as I walk up, there's this bouncer as I walk up to the front door and he's standing there at the door. And this guy's super jovial and he's kind of smiling. He obviously knows everyone. He's talking to people as they're walking up and down the street. And dude, I walked up to this guy and just went, and I finally asked him, I'm like, dude, how tall are you? And I realized he was six inches taller than Shaquille O'Neal. And he outweighed Shaq by 60 pounds. And he reached out and shook my hand and I shook his hand and it looked like a little kid, just like, you know? And, and I don't feel intimidated very often, but there was something in there that goes, man, this guy could squash me in a second. And, and there was just this humility that came in the shadow of this guy. And there's a reality that you can feel pretty strong until you get in the presence of someone who's a lot stronger than you are. And you can feel pretty good until you get in the presence of a holy God who's far superior to you are. And the reality is when you, next to the guy down the street, you may feel morally superior, but standing next to Jesus, I mean, you're gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna put your hand over your mouth and recognize that you need to stay quiet in front of him. Isaiah, in the presence of God, cries out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. See, un, uh, conviction always comes before transformation in the spiritual life. Conviction always comes before transformation. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there has to be a kind of emptying before there can be a filling. There are always two sides to the gospel. There's a pulling down and then a raising up. So there's gotta be this kind of emptying of self before God fills that space spiritually. It's why we sing in the old hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Saying, I've got nothing but poverty to bring, but you have all the riches I need, and so I run to you. Um, it's why we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Those, those are not popular titles to put over 
yourself. Like very few of us will probably put on our, our, our social media descriptions of, you know, who we are, you know, wretch. But there's a reality that that's what we sing in Christian churches. Why do we sing songs like this? We sing songs because we know it's to be true because we believe what Jesus said, that blessed are the poor in spirit. And when you believe what Jesus says about that, you're free to acknowledge your neediness before God and to run to him to be filled with the goodness that he offers and to run to him for blessing and for the promise which he, uh, which he gives to us. And so the very first beatitude tells us we're not capable of navigating life on our own, that we need God's help. It's self-awareness of our position and our person in the face of God. And so that's where Jesus begins this journey of what does it look like to have a life that is flourishing? Means that you have to understand you're standing before holy God and you come to him empty-handed, ready to receive from him. That doesn't mean that we're cowardly or weak or shy or nervous. It points to a humility of self that's, that just understands your accurate place in the universe, with accuracy, your place in the universe. You understand where it is that you fit in. You notice the promise that he offers. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, the reality is that the only people that are truly going to enjoy the kingdom of heaven are people that are humble. People that come and have a poverty of spirit. They're the ones that are going to enjoy being in the new creation that Jesus brings. The proud, the self-sufficient, they're never going to want to surrender to a kingdom where they're not king. Those who, who think they don't need a savior are never going to want to come into a kingdom that's built upon grace. They would rather try to earn their own way. And so Jesus is pushing on that. Jesus said, I came for the sick, but the Pharisees never think they need a doctor. So Jesus says, the only way you can, you can grow spiritually is to come to me for help. James says, God humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. See, this is the entryway to the kingdom of heaven. It's the path of humility and admission. It's good stuff, isn't it? So we're only gonna get through three of these Beatitudes today, just by the way, just so you don't get nervous. I initially thought I was gonna try to get through all these today and I looked and I was like, I might be able to do three. I probably should have done two, but I'm gonna go for three. So hang in with me. So let's go to the next one. Verse, uh, verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Uh, this is a shocking paradox in the 21st, or this beatitude is a shocking paradox. It would have been shocking in the first century. It's especially shocking in the 21st century. As we think about what, what this looks like, and in our day, we do everything to avoid mourning, mourning right? I mean, when it comes to this idea of grieving or mourning, man, we think we need to vacation it away, we need to binge it away, we need to drink it away, we need to vape it away. Whatever it is we need to do, we run away from hardship. Our, our world's kind of mantra is ignore your troubles or minimize them as much as possible, run past them and get to something else as quick as you possibly can. Uh, these things are hard enough without, uh, life's hard enough without all this morbid thinking. Like, why would you dwell on all that stuff? Our world would say, and yet... Then Jesus comes up and says to us, blessed are those who mourn. It's a really strange comment for us, right? I mean, our world deals with mourning in so many different ways. Look, uh, I want to see if you guys would just holler out and fill in this phrase for me. Because um, we, we have these phrases we say, like blank makes everything better. And um, what does our world say? Coffee. Coffee. Well, that, that might actually be right. But what are some other ones it says? Money, chocolate, that's what I was looking for. Uh, you know, how many, how many mother groups are there online that say, you know, like, you know, wine makes everything better? 
Like there's entire groups of, of ladies that have built a community around that one idea is that, you know, if life is hard, you should find a way of escape probably by, by 3 p.m. in the bewitching hour when your kids start to lose their minds, right? I mean, we have all these ways of coping in our world, but reality for us is Jesus comes in and says something really different to us. Blessed are those who mourn. But what I find is even in our world, we, there's this kind of implicit acknowledgement that we don't have it all together. Um, I love the Ava Brothers song, True Sadness. And they say, but I still wake up shaken by dreams. And I hate to say it, but the way it seems is that no one is fine. Take time to peel a few layers and you will find true sadness. So we put these facades up that say, man, I got it. I'm okay. And, and you know, you, you listen to comedians, they're like, just push it down. You know, just stick it, you know, take whatever those bad feelings are and push them back down and don't deal with them. And yet there's this true sadness that's kind of under the, lay, under the surface of all of our lives. That's why Jesus, I think, says there's a spiritual mourning, which he calls blessed. He says this is actually the way to flourishing is to deal with those things, to actually learn to mourn. One translation says this, happy are the unhappy. I mean, that's an awful translation. And it didn't even make sense. You're like, happy are the unhappy. I don't even know what that means. And so you look at it. But, but I think it, it, it surfaces the tension we feel with this attitude, with this uh, with this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, just feels contradictory. It feels like this paradox to us. Friends, I think some the reason some of us are constantly overwhelmed and despairing is because we've believed the lie that life is supposed to make us feel good all the time. We've believed the lie that, that from within ourselves should spring out happiness and goodness and everything that's in us ought to be embraced and fanned into flame and encouraged. And it simply isn't possible that our experience is going to be like that. And it doesn't lead us to a place of flourishing. So what, what does it mean um, to mourn? Blessed are those who mourn. First, we mourn over our own sins. Mourning is over where our own weakness, we, we mourn over our own personal weaknesses, our own personal shortcomings. That to actually mourn your sin is already to begin the process of repentance. Because the first thing you have to do is recognize, man, I've fallen short. So there's this poverty of spirit that's there. And then you move from just recognizing where you've fallen short. You move to a place of saying, man, I'm sorrowful for where I've fallen short. I'm sorrowful for where I've, where I've not measured up. And so as you do that, uh, that is, that's what it means to be led by the Lord into a place that eventually moves to a place of comfort. Now, if you think of your own spiritual poverty, uh, I think of Romans 7, uh, where Paul just uh, I think, think of things that, that Paul writes where he says, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of sin? Where he says, the, the things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I can't stop doing. And there's this tug of war that's going on in his life. And he just knows, man, I keep falling short. I know the right thing to do. And I keep tripping and falling down. And then I have to get back up and I have to do it again. And there's this struggle that's going on within me. And so there's this mourning that takes place where you just confess, man, I fall short again and again and again. And so there's a sorrow for our sin. But in this, there's, there's a good way to deal with this. And there's a bad way to deal with this. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, this is important. Listen to this. There, there's a way of mourning that actually leads to a destructiveness in your life. There's a way of grieving that's not a healthy way to do it. Jesus, or Paul is talking here about something, about a grief that's not grounded in the goodness and the grace of God. 
He's talking about the grief that just looks at your inadequacy and just focuses in on that and becomes this despairing, kind of destructive sort of a thinking. And so there's no hope whenever you try to grieve without God. And if, if the reality is that we all feel this true sadness and the reality is we all are born with a poverty of spirit, to embrace poverty of spirit without embracing a good God is gonna lead you to a place of despair because you're just gonna see where you blow it and you're not gonna see where it leads you to a healthy place. And friends, can I just say that everyone I know has passed through seasons of worldly grief? I, I honestly don't know a soul that hasn't gone through a time of depression where they struggled over their failures, over the brokenness of this world, over the brokenness of their own sin and the brokenness of the sin around them. And where they haven't turned inward at some point and just gone, I don't know what to do and had a feeling of despair. The Bible calls it worldly grief that leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads you in in a bad place. And I wanna make it really clear that there is a dangerous form of mourning that's life destroying rather than life-giving. And Jesus is not asking us to sink into some dark depression, to wallow in sadness, to grovel in self-pity, to to descend to a place um, of of deep darkness that we can't find a way out of. It does not mean that a disciple is supposed to be perpetually sad and weepy. But you notice there's another option Paul gives? He says there there is another option, a repentance leads to salvation without regret. So here, repentance means turning away from trying to do something on your own and turning toward the grace of Jesus, which restores you and renews you and, and, um, and forgives you so that you live life without regret. You see how different those two approaches to grief are? One that just leads you inward and leads you into a place of despair. Another one that turns and says, no, there is a good God that you can run to and that kind of mourning. And so here you see two kinds of mourning, a life-destroying mourning and a life giving morning, but everything hinges upon your faith and your relationship with God. So look at me at Joel 2. Uh, it says this, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your hearts and not just your clothes. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. See, that's what, that's what a healthy morning looks like. It's a healthy morning that says, look, I'm gonna confess but I'm confessing with a, with a, as a step of faith, turning to a good God who's gracious and abounding in steadfast love towards me. And so I can rest in that. So we mourn over our own sin. We also mourn over the sin of others. In some sense, mourning is, it's longing for God, for Jesus to return and make all things new. It's this desire that goes, Lord, when are you gonna come and make the world right? When are you gonna undo all the evil that the world has brought upon us? When are you going to right all these wrongs? And there's this desire and this hunger for God to show up and do those things. Jesus is called a comforter who will bind up the brokenhearted, which is why this promise says that, that those who mourn will be comforted. Do you understand that better times are ahead, friends? Like we mourn, but we mourn with a sense of expectation that, that hope is going to break in, that better times are coming, that, um, that that the reality is we, we bow down before we're raised up, that the poor in spirit must empty themselves before the Holy Spirit comes in. We must lay down our pretend good deeds before we take up the good deeds which the Father works in us. And so there's this progression to what it is. And when we mourn real sin, what it leads to is ultimately we can laugh with real joy. That, that's ultimately what we wanna do. Do you realize Satan always disguises uh, his deceptions with something good? 
And so the, what is the lie that our world says is, don't mourn, you should find another way to comfort yourself. So quash your mourning by trying to find a way of escape. And so vape it away, vacation it away, binge it away, do whatever it takes to get yourself into a place where you don't have to mourn. Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. And so it's actually through mourning that comfort truly comes. And so sometimes what happens is when we find surface comforts instead of and avoid our mourning, we actually satiate our desire in the moment. When we avoid real mourning, we never get to a place of real joy. Friends, our, our churches should be places of holy joy where we celebrate and we rejoice and we are excited because we've got a Savior who has victory over death, over sin, and over death. And he's a risen Savior. He's not in a grave. We have a living Savior who's sitting at the right hand of the Father and who promises to come back and make all things new. And so even if when, we, when we're in a place of mourning, we mourn with an expectation of hope and filling and goodness and joy because Jesus promises that we'll be comforted. And so that's the second of these Beatitudes. Let's look at the next one. Verse five says, Blessed are the meek, for they, will, they shall inherit the earth. And that's just the way we thought the world would work, right? Like world conquest comes through meekness. Uh, not, not usually the way we roll it out. I mean, I, you know, that'd be a hard one to, to roll out in a film and, and sell a whole lot of tickets to. Uh, but when Jesus described his own heart, do you realize this is the word Jesus used to describe his own heart? When, he, when it says uh, in Matthew 11, Jesus said, come to me all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest for I am meek and gentle, uh, meek and lowly of heart. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Is what, is what this means. And Jesus says, that's what my heart is like. And so Jesus here says, blessed are those who, who look like me, who are gentle and lowly, who are full of meekness. And this idea, this kind of humility is really a distinctively Christian idea. Like you don't see anywhere else the idea that the supreme, sovereign, powerful uh, one takes the form of a servant of all and lowers himself down to a place where he lifts everyone else up. This is a completely unique Christian sort of a thing. So what do we mean by meekness? Uh, Webster's defines meek as enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Uh, it doesn't mean just being a nice guy. Uh, see, some people are naturally easygoing. Some people will naturally come off as nice. This goes way beyond that. This goes to a place that there's strength under control. It's personal power checked by personal character. Meekness is an active self-direction that seeks, uh, that desires to see someone else advance. And, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, like, when you think about the first two of the Beatitudes, think of poverty of spirit, you think of mourning over your sin, like, it's one thing for me to acknowledge that I'm sinful. It's one thing for me to even kind of bring that to, acknowledge it to myself. It's another thing to acknowledge that to the Lord, but it's a whole different thing to let someone else tell me I'm sinful, Right? I mean, like, the, like, it's one thing for me to go, Lord, I need some help. It's another thing for someone to look at me and go, dude, you need some help. Like, when that happens, what's your first instinct? Like, you start to bow up. You're like, who are you to tell me what, I, you know, where my issues are? Let me tell you about your issues. Like, we instinctively push back. We resent when someone points out our own weakness, our own faults, our own, our own defaults of character. We don't like to be, we don't like to have those things pointed out to us. And yet, meekness says that when someone insults us, that we're patient, that we can, we can handle that without resentment. And you'd have to be humble and meek to receive criticism like that, right? The reality is most of us are, are better 
at self-justifying. Most of us are better at defensiveness. Most of us are better at building our case. Like as soon as someone sits down and goes, hey, I need to talk to you about this thing. You know, we've, we've kind of in the back of our brains, like we've got a sheet and we're like, well, let me tell you what my, you know, like you're, form- you're formulating your rebuttal uh, as soon as they bring it. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who can receive this in humility. And what's the promise? He says, they will inherit the earth. And we tend to, th- we tend to think that if we're humble and if we're meek, that we'll be overrun, that we'll be taken advantage of, that someone's going to push us down. And Jesus says, yet it's these kinds of people that inherit the earth. Um, why is that? Why does humility actually lead to inheriting the earth? Well, I think, first of all, having need of nothing, that those who are meek can be content with the here and now. Paul says, I've learned to be content in all things. I've learned to be content in poverty. I've learned to be content in abounding. That whatever my situation in the world is, I don't need anything. And so I come to the Lord and trusting him for everything. So there's a, there's a sense of contentment that, that I'm, I'm free even now. And so, uh, you know, when you think about God's world and the world in which we live, it ought to be enjoyed. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. And so somehow that's not contradictory to this idea of mourning and this idea of meekness, but there's a sense in which we can live in contentment and joy even in the midst of a world where, we don't, where everything doesn't seem right. And the second reason why I think he says we inherit the earth is one day Christ will reign over the earth. And when he comes to reign, he says that we're gonna reign with him. Meaning that everything that is Jesus, we're co-heirs with the Son. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're children who have an inheritance that's already, that's his. And so the inheritance he's won pours out to us. And so we are co-heirs with him of all things in, all, in his new creation. And so one day we will inherit the entire earth and reign with him and rule over the new creation along with King Jesus. That's good news for us. That's something to look forward to, something to long for. So friends, how do we apply this passage to our lives? Uh, as you think about these Beatitudes, it'd be easy to walk away from here and go, okay, I just need to confess more. I, I just need to feel worse about myself. I just, uh, you know, I, I need to come and just be humble and let anyone say anything they want and act like it's okay. Here's the thing. You can't do these on your own. These are supernatural things God has to work in you. The reality is none of the Beatitudes are natural, instinctive things that we just, that flow out of us. There's something that's bigger than personality. Sometimes I think we read these and you go, oh, that just should be someone with this kind of natural personality of being a quiet person. They're, they're, the, they're the meek ones in the world. And yet what Jesus says and what the Beatitudes tell us are all eight of these are supposed to be in all eight, uh, in every Christian. There's not like eight different kinds of people, eight different personalities. This isn't, isn't describing like, there's some people that just have a natural bent towards mourning and Jesus is like, hey, that dude will be okay someday. Uh, there's some people that are just naturally meek, like they're, you know, they probably are feelers and they're a little quieter and they're, they're not really type A personalities. And so those are the meek and someday those people, God's gonna give them some good stuff too because life's so hard right now. That, that's really not what this means. What it's saying is these are eight attributes or values or ideals that Jesus says these all should be fostered in each of our lives. And here's the thing. None of us do meekness naturally. Like you don't come out of the womb and go, oh, I'm humble and lowly and I'm gonna receive whatever correction mom and dad have to offer. Like if you've ever had an infant, you know that's just not the way it is. The first word a kid learns is what? No. And the second one is mine, right? Like that's just the way kids come out in the world. And it's not, that's not naturally coming out in a, in a form of meekness. Um, that's just not the way we're bent. It's not the way we're wired. It's not the way in which we live. Some people are naturally aggressive and some are more reserved. Some are gonna be emotional and some can't find an emotion. They need to like, 
Like they're in there, but you know, they need some help discerning and even what's going on. Like we, we're all wired differently. This isn't what it's talking about. These are spiritual characteristics that are meant to be cultivated as a part of our discipleship. And it can only happen with God's help. Um, Dallas Willard says this about our discipleship. So the disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in her, in her life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. Friends, it's a messy thing, this learning to follow Jesus. It's this imperfect trip and fall and pick yourself back up and uh, try to wipe your face off and get it, you know, you know, wipe your tears away and go take another day. It's this kind of messy thing that happens as we learn to follow Jesus because none of us do it well. Life beats us up and we recognize over and over and over that we fall short. And the reality, and part of what I love about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is he, he comes to us and he says, hey, let me just talk to you about what my world and what my kingdom, what it looks like to, to lean into the way of my kingdom in these areas of money and divorce and anger and, uh, and, and, and worry and all these, and lust, and all these different areas of life, Jesus is so honest about it. He says, look, you don't naturally foster these things in your life. You're going to need some help. And so the reason he starts off with poverty of spirit is that if you try to do these things on your own, it's going to be like trying to draft on a bank account that has a negative balance. And, and, and when you get it, it's just going to, you're going to come up empty. There's going to be nothing to transfer from self to a place of better, to a better place. And because you start with the poverty of spirit, you have to recognize there's a mourning. And mourning is really, it's a longing for God to come in and do something new in you. And because of that, there's a humility. And humility is going to lead, we're going to see next week, to a hunger and thirst after righteousness. So once you've been empty, then God's going to begin to turn the corner and say, let me show you now how to live. And so once you've laid down self, you can begin to pick up a new way. You can begin to learn what it means to lean into the way of kingdom. Can I give you one last challenge on this? Christ exposes the false idea that true happiness is found in here. The true happiness is found in our present emotional state. Our world tells us over and over and over to look inside and there's good there. And if you just let that out and, and alleviate anything that gets in the way of that, you'll find a place of freedom and you'll find your true self. And what Christ is saying here is that's a lie. That will not lead you to a place of flourishing. And most of us need to do some emotional maturing and some biblical strengthening so that we learn how to navigate life. You know, when I went through deep suffering several years ago, one of the things that surfaced in my own life was I recognized that there was this kind of underlying assumption that when I suffered, something was wrong. Then when I suffered, that God was not meeting me, that maybe God was not doing his job, that God was letting me down, that God wasn't all he said to be. And it made me begin to question, well, what's going on in this thing? And is this thing even real? Because suffering for me and what our culture, I never embraced it intellectually, but there was something in here that made me feel unsettled when life wasn't working the way I thought it ought to work. What that meant was there were ideas in our culture that had begun to infiltrate my own heart. And I had, to, I had to work through those. And what that means is a lot of times we need some emotional 
maturing and we need some biblical strengthening to learn how to navigate these things. I need to come back to what Jesus said. And I need to accept that as the truth and I need to learn to live in light of what he was saying. Now it's interesting when you think about our culture. Um, Tim Keller's written that our modern therapeutic self, uh, this kind of is a, is a new approach to finding our own identity. And he says, when we, look at a, when we look within at our desires and then determine or create who we are, not allowing anyone else to validate, define us, or make us feel guilty, we are then to demand that our world affirm our, affirm our expression of ourselves. That's the, what our world tells us. Our world tells us that you look inside and out of that, you either acknowledge or confirm who you are. And as you learn to express yourself, the world's job is to affirm that, but it's not anyone's job to tell you that it's wrong. But what Jesus is saying is that that's not a good way to define, to define yourself and to find your own identity. The problem is, Keller goes on to say, that you cannot discover the real you by looking at your changing and contradictory inner feelings. You need a standard of values by which we can sift our inner drives and determine which ones characterize our true selves and our false selves. Christians believe the Bible gives us a standard to determine our dehumanizing desires and our right humanizing ones. Do you care what he's saying? Friends, this is, it's, it's not easy to follow, but it's, it's important. Our world tells us that to be human is to take whatever's in here and express it out there and the world ought to affirm it and nothing can get in the way of it. What Jesus says is what's in here, what comes out of us oftentimes, is, is actually not human flourishing, it's dehumanizing. It leads us away from human flourishing and from God's intention for us. And so our job, friends, is to come as those who are needy, those who acknowledge that, man, I don't have it all in here, I need God's help. And in that, that we, we look to the Lord as those who are humble and allow him to show us the way. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come as those who truly are poor in spirit. Father, as those who need to mourn where we fall short. Father, help us to come as those who are meek, who are humble before you. Father, we come even now just empty-handed. We come acknowledging that the way of flourishing is not coming from within us, but the way of flourishing comes from you. So Father, we ask for your help. We ask for your grace, your mercy. Would you convince us of your love? Would you show us the way of life? That we might trust you and that we might continually flourish as we walk in the days ahead. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.